food, glorious food. We're anxious to try it. Three banquets a day, our favourite diet. Yes, it's me, Jamie, constantly snacking cool. And Lachlan, what's for dinner, McKenna? This is actually, it's Phytoplankton, Planet Ocean, the science podcast for kids about oceanography. Today is our biology lesson and we are learning all about the marine food web. Go to our website, go to curious.com and grab a free resource pack for some visual aids to help you follow today's discussion. So it's very convenient that we're learning about food webs, Lachlan, because as you know, National Science Week schools theme this year is food different by design. Well, we are here to tell you that ocean is life, people. Without it, there wouldn't be any food for us at all. Yeah, if you listen to season one, we were always banging on about how you should thank phytoplankton for the food you eat and the air that you breathe. Jamie, on all our episodes this year, we're doing a bit of a six degrees of separation from Kevin Bacon thingy, but with our favorite foods and phytoplankton. So what's your favorite food and how can you connect it back to phytoplankton? Look, this is a very serious question for me. I love food, but I think I will have to go with my favorite, which is peanut butter. And so I'm diabetic, so I have to steer away from carbs and chocolate and those sorts of yummy things. Not always, but mostly. But I really love peanut butter. And as it's mostly proteins and fats, I can pretty much eat as much as I like within reason. So To do my six degrees of separation from phytoplankton, I'll start by saying that I know peanuts are nitrogen fixers, which means that they put nitrogen into the soil when you plant them and they grow, which is nice and yummy for the soil. And that some phytoplanktons do that too. And I remember last season you saying that trichodesmium were the peanuts of the sea and then we all groaned at you. Okay, Jamie, that's what they have in common. They're nitrogen oh, fixes. But right. how do you connect them? Um, I, You know, I don't know, actually. <laughs> I don't know how to connect peanut butter and phytoplankton, so I think I need some expert help. And luckily for me, we have some food web experts with us on today's episode. Maybe they can help me out. Help! Uh, maybe they can. Today we're talking with Dr. Colleen Durkin from Moss Landing Marine Laboratories in sunny California and Dr. Debbie Steinberg from the Virginia Institute of Marine Science. Both those places are in America, in case you're wondering. Welcome to the podcast, Colleen and Debbie. Hi. Thank you you. very much. It's great to be here. So thanks for joining us today, you guys. We're going to ask you to help us begin to unpack and understand the marine food web. But first, can you help me with my peanuts to phytoplankton problem, please? Who wants to take that one on? Anyone? Colleen? I can I can try. Um, Great. So I'm not sure how legitimate of a connection you guys are gonna think of this as, but um, I really like thinking about evolution of plants. And so peanuts are a type of plant, and the reason they're able to grow is because they have chloroplasts. They are able to use the sun's energy because they have chloroplasts that are in inside their leaves that can harvest sunlight. And the only reason they have chloroplasts is because those chloroplasts evolved from uh, marine algae. So basically, millions of years ago, chloroplasts evolved in the ocean. And then over time, plants evolved on land. And so peanuts are kind of like the second or third cousins once removed of phytoplankton because they share these chloroplasts. I love that. I think that's great. Okay, our podcast is made for middle schoolers who might just be starting to think about what they want to do in their future. So, Colleen, 
what did you want to be when you were 13? To be honest, I did not have any very serious career aspirations at that age. But when I think about it, I think probably the only thing I really was excited about being when I grew up was uh, the owner of a dance club. Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Do you mean like a nightclub or a dance school? Uh, Like a nightclub. A nightclub. Yeah. Oh, wow. (laughs) Like night at the Roxbury. Okay. So what about you, Debbie? Did you want to own a nightclub when you were 13? No, I didn't want to own one, although I did love to dance and and I still do. So I would have gone to Colleen's nightclub, but I, I either wanted to be a teacher, a zookeeper, or a marine biologist, actually. And what do you both do now? Well, I am an oceanographer, a biological oceanographer, and I run a research lab uh, at the Moss Landing Marine Labs, and I study phytoplankton and how they grow in the surface ocean, how they respond to changing environmental conditions, and then also how the carbon that they produce when they grow gets transported and sinks into the deep ocean. And then what happens to that carbon in the deep ocean? And what about you, Debbie? What do you do now? I am a professor at uh, Virginia Institute of Marine Science, and I teach. So I teach oceanography, and I also do research in biological oceanography. And my specialty is zooplankton ecology. And zooplankton are the little drifting animals in the ocean near the bottom of the food web, not the very bottom. But they are, I'm, I'm interested in long-term changes in zooplankton due to the changing climate. And I'm also interested in the role that zooplankton play in nutrient cycles and carbon cycles in, in the ocean. So we've talked a little bit about zooplankton on the podcast in other episodes, and we will throughout this season as well. And we've noticed that there are two different pronunciations that we come across. So Lachlan and I and our um, friend Steph Hansen in the UK say zooplankton, and then all the folks that we've spoken to in America say zooplankton. So are both pronunciations okay? Yeah, I think they're both okay. And I have noticed that my British and Australian colleagues saying zooplankton. Okay, sounds to me like you are the perfect people to help us unravel the marine food web. We talked about this a little bit in season one, but we didn't get into the details. So let's start with what the heck is a food web? In the simplest terms, it's just a representation of what eats what in an ecological community. So it, it shows how energy and nutrients are transferred from plants, so the lower trophic levels, up to the higher ones, the things that eat plants like herbivores, and then to the carnivores, the things that uh, eat other plants or animals. And so they're all interconnected like a web. So what's the difference between a food web and a food chain? Because food chain is something that I've heard of. Food web is a new term to me, and I don't quite get it. Basically, a food web is like a bunch of interlocking food chains. A food chain is is more is more simple. It's linear. It's in one direction. So it starts with a producer, some sort of a plant, and then it goes up from from there. So that's a, a the food chain is just goes in one direction, and then you put a bunch of those together in all different directions, and you have a food web. Why should we thank phytoplankton for our food? What is their role in the marine food web? 
Yeah, so phytoplankton are primary producers in the ocean, which means they are the first producers of organic carbon. So a lot of the carbon on Earth is is in gas, right, is in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And that's not something that you can eat. So that carbon has to get turned into organic matter before it actually becomes food. So phytoplankton use the sun's energy in order to take that carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and produce organic carbon in their cells. So in that way, they're primary producers, and they transform that carbon that otherwise was inaccessible as a gas into something that can be now be eaten. So are there any other primary producers in the ocean, or is it just phytoplankton that do that job? Phytoplankton are the main primary producers in the ocean, but there are a few really weird primary producers. There is actually some bacteria that live in the deep ocean, like around hydrothermal vents that use uh, chemical energy in order to fix that inorganic carbon into organic carbon. So they actually use a totally different biological mechanism in order to grow. So they're not using the sun's energy, but they're kind of a, a very specialized form of life in the ocean. Most primary producers in the ocean are phytoplankton. And what about zooplankton? They're a bit bigger than phytoplankton and are not autotrophs, meaning they don't make their own food from photosynthesis. So our listeners may have heard of these little creatures called krill. So krill is zooplankton, and they famously feature in the diet of whales. Whales love krill. Nom, 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 nom. So I understand that zooplankton, such as krill, eat phytoplankton. But how do we actually know that they eat phytoplankton? Do you catch them, Deb? And do you like do little creepy tiny autopsies on them? Actually, yes, we do. We do yeah. catch them. <laughs> oh, I wasn't sure. I thought you were going to say no. <laughs> In fact, krill are one of my specialties because one of my big research projects is in the Southern Ocean and where there are lots of krill and they're a really important part of the food web there. Maybe we'll get a chance to talk about that. So when we catch the krill, with, we do it with net toes and we bring them on board and you can hold up a krill, which look like little shrimp. They're slightly transparent. So you can see right into their guts. You can see that, that there's sort of greenish golden brown, the color of the phytoplankton. Like if your stomach was slightly transparent and your friend looked at your stomach and could tell that you had a salad for lunch, right? You could see right <laughs> into their stomach. So you can see the color. And so that's one way we can tell. Another way we can tell is we can actually dissect them. And so that's like a tiny autopsy. And we can look and see in, under the microscope what's in their, in their stomachs. And we can see the phytoplankton in there. And we can also extract the pigments that the phytoplankton have, the stuff that makes them the color that they are. And we can also tell that they're eating different kinds of phytoplankton by what kind of pigments. So there's lots of different ways, actually, that we can tell krill and other zooplankton eat phytoplankton. So I was actually doing my research while I was walking on the treadmill at the gym and I got really engrossed in this topic because I thought it was so interesting and I walked for 30 minutes without even noticing that I was exercising. And there were a couple of concepts that really made me reflect and think about how beautifully balanced our natural world is. So I learned about these two things. I learned about keystone species and trophic cascades. And I get this is probably a big question, but can you talk us through what all of that means? A keystone species 
is a species on which other species in an ecosystem largely depend upon. So if the keystone species were to be removed, that would be bad news for an ecosystem. The, the other organisms in the ecosystem might not even, even survive without it. And a trophic cascade is when you add or remove a top predator from an ecosystem, and then that affects the, the abundance or the survival of the next trophic level down. And so that also changes the ecosystem. So there's a cascading effect down the food chain. So are there any real world examples you can give about times when a keystone species has been removed from an aquatic ecosystem? Yes, there's a really great example actually um, that happened here on the West Coast of the United States a few years ago, uh, especially in 2014 and 2015. There was a a big die-off of uh, sea stars in the intertidal zone because of this this sea star wasting syndrome. And so when all of these sea stars were removed from the ecosystem because they were dying of this, this disease, then suddenly there was this big release of grazing pressure on their on one of their favorite foods. So one of their favorite foods is sea urchins. And so then with the sea stars all dead, the, the sea urchins were able to grow completely uncontrolled. And then the sea urchins were able to just graze uncontrolled on their favorite food, which is uh, the kelp forest. And so we had this massive reduction and die-off of the kelp forests here. And that was caused by the die-off of the, the sea stars. So it's kind of like this indirect consequence of the loss of this one very important keystone species. Okay, folks, so it's time to take a little break and complete the food web activity in your resource pack. So everything we've just spoken about, trophic cascades and keystone species, there's more information about that in the packs and something for you to play around with as well to learn a bit more about it. So go onto our website, go to curious.com, grab the pack for season two, episode two, download the food web activity and pause now now. to get to work. Hit play when you're done and we'll see you on the other side. Welcome back. This is actually, it's Phytoplankton Planet Ocean, and we're still trying to unravel the marine food web on today's biology lesson. We've got some more questions for our expert guests, Colleen and Debbie, so let's get into it. First up, what's the difference between predators and apex predators? A predator is an animal that preys on another organism. And an apex predator is at the top of the food chain. The apex predator has no natural predators of its own. People, I think, are pretty familiar with a lot of apex predators. There are things in the oceans, things like sharks. On land, think of lions. And in fact, humans, many people consider apex predators as well. Cool. Yeah, I was thinking sharks, orca whales. Um, have you, can you think of any others in the in the ocean? Blue whale sprung to mind. Blue whale. I, I, I know they eat the zooplankton, but nothing eats a zoo, <laughs> nothing can fit a blue whale in its mouth. Things with teeth. Things with teeth. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I can think of is sharks and orca whales. Yeah, for some reason I was thinking of certain species of maybe eagles seals. And- 
but stuff eats seals. Mm-hmm. Like orc whales eat seals. Orcas eat whale blue whales too. They oh, orcas here we go. Everything, so. man. They are scary. Um, yeah. They are the scariest thing on the planet. They're so terrifying. I'd love to see one. I would love to see uh, one not at SeaWorld, just like in the wild. Well, if you're here in Australia, go down to Bremer Bay in Western Australia. It's a famous underwater canyon there, and the uh, orca just come in there annually, and there's they come in huge numbers. Oh, cool. I just don't want to be like a good distance away, though, because I'm a little bit scared. Don't want to get in the water with those guys. No. So us humans, we're apex predators too, although an orca whale will probably eat us if we gave it a chance. What is our impact on the marine food webs, and how can we be more sustainable to make sure that we don't cause these trophic cascades? Well, that's that's a pretty big question. And there's actually so many things that we can do. You know, when, when I think of what's the most direct thing that we can do that impacts the ocean, the first thing that comes to my mind is thinking about the types of fish we eat. Because as we just talked about, some of these fish are really key, uh, important players in these food webs. And depending on fishing practices, uh, that can really affect the food webs because it affects the prey that they eat or the predators that depend on them for food. And so I love eating seafood. I, I think it's great. And one thing that we can do is think about where our seafood comes from and which fish species we're eating and whether that's a sustainable fishery. So that that's a really direct impact. But then you think about like that example I talked about earlier with the sea stars that we don't, it's still not totally clear what causes that sea star wasting disease, which caused a terrific cascade to happen. But we do know it's somehow related to warming ocean temperatures. And we also know that the reason the ocean's getting warmer is because of human caused climate change. And so if we start taking climate change seriously and try to mitigate our impacts on the climate, then that would be a responsible way to try to avoid causing more trophic cascades. And I was just thinking about trophic cascades and us as humans and that in Queensland fishing is a really great leisure practice that we have but there are areas of our oceans that are called green zones. Lockie do you want to talk about the green zones a little bit? Oh sure yeah well I I mean I did a lot of work up in the Great Barrier Reef so that's where my frame of reference goes with marine park management but that's a huge area it spans uh, from about 10 degrees north to 24 five south roughly so it's like about 1800 kilometers in length but there's obviously recreational fishing there's coral reefs there's also commercial fishing operations happen up there and so i think a management plan where you we talk about these green zones is where you don't take fish from you let them restock and give them a break from being caught and made into our dinner yeah and um, so the point of those is to stop these trophic cascades from ex- happening right? exactly yeah and but what's really neat about those is it's that intersection between i guess the um, commercial industry and i guess environmental managers and scientists because you've got to go out and research and understand the ecosystem where these fish are restocking on what particular reefs and then that's where you draw the boundary and say hey we don't we don't catch fish we don't catch mackerel here at mm. this time of year because that's the spawning ground so let's imagine an ecosystem say a coral reef because we have got a pretty famous one here in queensland great barrier reef so can you tell us how a food web might work in a coral reef in a coral reef uh there's there's going to be a number of different primary producers and the main one is phytoplankton and but there's also seagrasses and there's brown and red algae growing on the reef too. But what's really neat about coral reef 
are that there's also primary producers in the corals. They're called zooxanthellae and they're symbionts and they're phytoplankton that live in the coral tissue. And they also are primary producers and they provide some nutrients to the corals. Now the corals eat zooplankton as well. So they can catch zooplankton with their, their tentacles. They might be considered primary consumers in a coral reef. But there's other consumers, there's fish and there's sea stars and nudibranchs, little worms and all sorts of things. And then there's things like sharks and barracuda that are, are predators on some of the other fish. And with any ecosystem, there's also the decomposers. So there's the detritivores, the things that eat dead stuff. And there's bacteria that break down a lot of the organic uh, matter. So coral, that's a you know very simplified coral reef, but there's a, there's a lot of different organisms that live in coral reefs. And in fact, they're some of the most diverse ecosystems and food webs on the planet. And what about a contrasting environment like, say, in Antarctica, where it's really cold? Well, in Antarctica, it's very different. First of all, there there are similarities, like there's phytoplankton are the, the primary producers. And on the benthos, the, the, that's the bottom, ocean bottom, There's there are some algae that grow too. But around Antarctica, we have phytoplankton, and then there are these krill that I mentioned earlier that are these little shrimp-like creatures that form these massive swarms there. And they can go on for 100 kilometers. Some of the swarms are so huge. And they're fed upon by a number of different animals that you might be familiar with. Think things like baleen whales that feed on plankton, also penguins and other seabirds and seals as well. So they're a really important part of the, the ecosystem there. And so it's a very, very different in environment. It's nutrient rich big zooplankton and, and large things that eat them because the krill provides so much nutrition to these seals and other big things. So within Earth's oceans, we have these areas called productive zones and non-productive zones. So this is kind of like on land where we have deserts, which there's not a lot of plants growing, there's not a lot of animals living there. And we have rainforests where conditions are just right for heaps of plants, heaps of animals, lots of life. So it's kind of similar in the oceans. There are ocean deserts and there are ocean rainforests, places where there is a lot of life and a lot of um, production happening and places where there's not a lot of life and not a lot happening. So these zones are affected by quite a lot of stuff because remember earth is a system and they can be impacted by weather patterns. So this year in Australia, we've been experiencing a La Nina weather pattern. And for Queenslanders, the La Nina pretty much means plenty of rain, full rainwater tanks, nice lawns, nice gardens. But during El Nino, which is the opposite, we get that dry, hot weather, we have empty water tanks, and we all end up on water restrictions. So what does La Nina and El Nino patterns mean for these productive zones and non-productive zones in the oceans? Well, the... El Nino and La Nina affect, uh, are especially directly affect the equatorial regions of the ocean, uh, the equatorial Pacific. And so during a La Nina, that means that those weather patterns, uh, the, the changes in the wind that go across the equator cause changes in the ocean currents as well. So 
you get this much stronger upwelling or deep nutrient-rich water in the ocean gets mixed up to the surface and fuels phytoplankton blooms. And so that, that happens normally. So it's it, this region of the ocean around offshore of South America is normally a very productive region. It's a very productive fishery for that region because there are big phytoplankton blooms because of that. But during a La Nina, it's like on steroids, right? The wind is much stronger. The There's more upwelling of that deep water. And so those productive regions, just uh, the extent of it and the magnitude is just much bigger. So that productive region, actually, it extends farther out into the ocean, farther across the equator. It also extends farther up the coastline. So we, we see it here in California, too. We also have that upwelling of deep water, and we see that change in productivity here as well. But during the El Nino... It's the opposite. So those those uh, wind patterns, those are weaker. And so there's less mixing up of the deep nutrient rich water. And so there's less production. And so the extent of that productive zone actually decreases and it affects the fisheries as well. So it, it goes all the way up the food chain. So Lachlan said at the start of the episode, ocean is life and that there wouldn't be any food for us to eat without it. Uh, how true is that statement? Well, I, I think it's pretty true. Half of the photosynthesis on Earth, um, on the planet, is, is carried out by marine phytoplankton. And the phytoplankton feed a massive amount of animals in the ocean. And many of these animals, like fish, are things that, that humans consume. And so it is a really important part of life on Earth and feeds a large part of our, our planet. There are many, many people are dependent upon the oceans for their, for their food or for much of their food. And also the ocean regulates our climate and so uh, helps to regulate where the rain falls and how productive some areas of the, the land are as well. And so it's really true that um, ocean is life. All right. So we have covered all that serious stuff. Now it's time for the most important question. What's your favorite food and how can you connect it to phytoplankton? Well, my favorite food hands down is ice cream. Nice. And my favorite flavor is mint chocolate chip. I guess the only way to really relate that back to phytoplankton is mint chocolate chip ice cream is green, and there are many <laughs> phytoplankton. <laughs> Bit of chlorophyll so, in your ice cream. <laughs> what about you, Colleen? Favorite food? Oh, my favorite food by far is artichokes. I just happen to live next to the self-proclaimed artichoke capital of the world. So I, it's a pretty good place for me to be living because I get to eat artichokes all the time. So I, I actually drive past through these artichoke fields on my way to work every day. I actually get to see uh, how they're farmed. And I know that it takes a lot of nutrients to farm artichokes. They have to put a lot of fertilizer into the farm fields in order to make these artichokes grow. And I also live right on the coast. And so all of that fertilizer, when it rains, it kind of it gets into the, the runoff water and uh, drains out into, our, into the bay. And so there is really high nutrient runoff from these artichoke fields uh, out into the ocean. And then those nutrients are directly utilized by the phytoplankton that are growing out there. So actually, the artichoke fields are, are fueling phytoplankton growth as well. So there's a pretty direct connection there. 
So thank you so much, Colleen and Debbie, for taking the time out of your very busy schedules to help us better understand and appreciate our oceans. I will think of you every time I reach for the peanut butter, which is every day. Thank you. This was really fun. Well, thanks for listening, folks at home, and make sure you enter our National Science Week prize draw. Yes, head to our website, gotocurious.com, for your chance to win an Oculus Quest VR headset and the game Ocean Rift. It's the world's first VR aquatic safari park. We'll also organise access to the phytoplankton zoo mentioned in episode one. So to enter the draw, we want to know in 50 words or less, how will you use your new VR headset to excite someone else about science? Okay, what do we got lined up for episode three, Jamie? Well, remember we learned in season one that carbon dioxide is not cow farts, as I originally thought that it was, and that phytoplankton actually convert carbon dioxide into oxygen. Oh, yes. Phytoplankton are responsible for oxygen we breathe in every second breath. Really amazing little creatures. So Ivana is joining us on the next episode for our chemistry-biology combo lesson about Earth's amazing carbon cycle. We're also talking with Dr. Steph Henson from the National Oceanography Centre in Southampton. That's in England. Cool, blimey. Oh, gosh. (laughs) See you next time. Bye. Actually, It's Phytoplankton is a Go To Curious production proudly supported by a National Science Week grant from the Australian Commonwealth Government. Thank you to all our expert guests collaborating on Season 2 and special thanks to co-presenters Ivana Setinich and Lachlan McKinna who work behind the scenes as script consultants. The series is prepared and written by me, Jamie Cool. I compose our theme music and create the resource materials on our website, gotocurious.com. Our fabulous logos are designed by Hannah at Boone Creative.